We'll go ahead and take your Bible with me this morning and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, it's towards the end of, of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy this morning. We're going to start two-week series uh, talking about money. We haven't done this in a couple of years, um, and if you're visiting with us, I'm, money's awkward, but we'll, we'll talk about it anyways. We're going to consider just three verses over the next few weeks. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry does have a handful. Please put your hand in the air. I want you to have this in front of you. Um, as, you, as, as we process through this text together, um, it's important that we see the words that God has inspired through his spirit, uh, in this case, his servant, Tim, or Tim, servant Paul to write to, to his disciple Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 this morning. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Like I said, we're starting a couple of weeks t- thinking about money. The reason we're talking about money is because the New Testament gives a ton of attention to it. And there is a very specific reason why it gives a ton of attention to it. And it's because uh, when, we, uh, when we think about money, it is a clear picture or a window into, into our hearts. This is the way that the New Testament discusses finances and resources, what we have and what we've been given so the reality is that when we, like I said, when we start talking about money, we oftentimes feel, feel awkward, and I'm sure that you've all been, if you've been in the church for much of your life, like I have, you've probably been in a situation where money has been discussed from the front and it's made you squirm, right? That's been a, a reality, and we kind of put our heads down and we kind of think to ourselves, I don't want to talk about this, I'm going to punch out. But again, the reality is this 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 shows us or displays to us something very specific that's happening in our heart, the way that we think about and the way that we use our, our financial resources. And if we're honest about it too, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of awkward in the Bible. If you read your Bible regularly, you run across a lot of things that, that expose you, that don't make you feel positive and encouraged, but the reality make you feel, feel frustrated. God, why did you make this this way? Why did you bring about these things? Why did you say these things? Because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And we realize then that the the Bible is a dangerous book. If you're here this morning and haven't spent any time in the Bible recently, I would encourage you to do so because it's a dangerous book. It it exposes in us, again, it exposes things uh, that we oftentimes don't like to be exposed. I'm convinced people people even readily admit they spend little time in their Bible. And, and, and oftentimes, a survey I read recently said that the reason people spend little time in their Bibles who claim to be Christians is because they don't have time to do it. Well, I, I, think, I think that's 100% correct, except for one small nuance. We don't have time to feel the discomfort that sometimes the Bible brings about. We don't have time to feel the discomfort that sometimes the Bible brings about when it's exposing us. So when we look at this text this morning, when we consider 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, in my sinful flesh, I'm very frustrated that this is included. I'm, I'm very, very frustrated because of the simplicity of what Paul says. It, it's so straightforward, and yet it's so important for us as, as God's, God's people. 
And when I read this text, my first inclination, I was reading 1 Timothy through just a few weeks ago, and my first inclination is when I got to 1 Timothy 6, and even to the whole chapter of 6, and even really the whole book, I, I, I had the mentality, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I, this is, everything is fine. Just leave me alone. And you, you're thinking, so, so you're saying that we shouldn't always be comfortable, and the answer is yes. A biblical truth that the world will not deny. Friends, if you're in the world, if you're spending time in the world, in a secular vocation, or, or just with friends and neighbors and coworkers and whoever who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you spend time in those settings, no one will deny this. This is a very real biblical truth. They will not deny that adversity or discomfort or suffering brings about growth in us as human beings. No one's denying that. But frequently for us in the church, we say, I want my Christianity to be low cost. I want it to be low commitment. I want it to be high comfort. The reality is if we embrace those things as primary tenets of biblical Christianity, then we can't expect friends to grow. The things that don't grow aren't, aren't healthy. I went to the dentist this week for the first time in like four years. That's terrible. I'm admitting that to you. I went to the dentist for the first time in four years because my teeth have been killing me. Like they've just been, like I'm up here right now and if I don't smile, it's because something's happening in my mouth. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Something's going wrong. Some, something. They're sensitive. I put off going to the dentist for as long as I could, but I couldn't do it any longer. It wasn't decay, but as I was preparing my sermon before I went to the dentist, I thought to myself, what is this like? What is my heart like when I come to this? Who, who am I and how is it that I am thinking about this text? And I think oftentimes we, we have spiritual tooth decay, right? And we, we need a dentist. And, and some of us in this room this morning have a mouthful of rotting spiritual teeth. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is meat, and when we bite into this and begin to chew, it's really painful. It's really painful. It hurts. It hurts. Because so much of what's communicated in this book, in God's word, so much of what's communicated here is in direct opposition to the direction my sinful flesh wants to take me every single moment of every single day. And what... It, when I do have a mouthful of rotting spiritual teeth, I'm tempted to be satisfied with lukewarm liquids, right? Like I'm, I'm like lukewarm tap water in my mouth all the time because it hurts. But we need to have our spiritual teeth restored and God can do that through the power of his spirit so that we can bite into the meat of God's word and be nourished and sustained and grow. And again, that's not a simple or easy process or even a painless one, but it is one that is absolutely necessary. Friends, if you're in Christ, that is one that is absolutely, absolutely necessary. And we need to be met with discomfort, especially when it comes to our ideas about and use of finances. Now, that, that seems super depressing right out of the gate. I hope, I hope that that doesn't 
throw you. But the reality is the, the truths that wash over us from God's word are oftentimes uncomfortable for us. And when we have ourselves in the driver's seat and ourselves as the primary focus, we need to be taken out of that place and put God in his rightful place in, in our lives. So right now, as we go to this text and read these three verses, right now, friends, we'd be tempted to listen. What Jesus says is we'd be tempted to listen but not hear. That we, would, that we might be uh, tempted to see but not perceive. We might be tempted when the Spirit of Christ is setting a heavy weight of conviction on our hearts. We might be tempted to ignore it. We would be tempted to set up a roadblock between our head and our heart and we say, I know that thing. I know that that's true but not allow it to affect our day-to-day and remain unchanged. We would be tempted to internally skirt the discomfort and ultimately fail to grow. But friends, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. And that means oftentimes being uncomfortable when we spend time in God's word. So let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. I'm just going to read this for us and we'll dive in. 1 Timothy 6. 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This morning, we're just going to think about verse 17, and next week, we'll, we'll think about verses 18 and 19, because verses 18 and 19 kind of like give us, Paul gives us the natural outworking of one who doesn't fix his hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But we're going to look at verse 17, so just consider this with me. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There, there's an E-Trade commercial right now. I don't know if you've seen it. There's an E-Trade commercial right now. Uh, there's a family sitting around a, a fireplace at holiday time. They're drinking warm drinks. They all look really good. Their hair is in the right place. Um, and and it, it's a, it's a good-looking family. And the, the, the camera zooms in on, on one gentleman. He's kind of sitting off to the side by himself, and he's just observing people laughing and having a good time together. Have you seen this commercial? You know where I'm going? No? Okay. All right, cool. That's fine. I'm going to tell you what the narrator says anyway, so you, you could just, just in your mind's eye, picture this. The narrator says this. There he is, your new brother-in-law. You like him. He's one of those guys who always smells good. His five o'clock shadow is always at five o'clock. You like him. Your mom says he's done really well for himself. He has stocks and bonds. Your dad wants to go fishing with him. Your dad doesn't even like fishing. You, you like your brother-in-law, but you'd like him better if you made more money than he does. Don't get mad at your brother-in-law. Get E-Trade. I have to admit that you're laughing. I laughed out loud when I heard that because what, what, that's a moment that it's like you're saying what everyone is thinking, right? Like, like you have the audacity to say that everyone is, but it's, it's, it's indulging this sinful tendency right before our eyes as we're watching an E-Trade commercial. This, 
sinful tendency that runs rampant in, in our culture. And oftentimes we press it down so it's not right at the surface like it is here. But that sinful tendency is just simply greed. And greed is an all-consuming desire for something like money or power. It's a hunger. And oftentimes even in our language, when we talk about someone who's greedy, we talk about them as money-hungry or power-hungry, right? Those are actually descriptors that we use for people when we see them who are going after or running hard after or desiring money or, or power. And, and when we think about money-hungry, right, we think about the fact that that's oftentimes rooted just in simple comparisons, just in simple comparisons, much like, this, much like this, this commercial. The whole thing is rooted in this guy's desire. As you zoom in on his face, this perfect family in their nice cabin while it's snowing outside, you, you look at his, his audacious face and you say, uh, he, he's saying, I want to have more money than my brother-in-law. And, and maybe, maybe for me, like I think to myself, maybe it's not, direct comparisons to people, but maybe, in, maybe it's a comparison to a standard. What is the standard? What is my standard of living? How do I line up with that thing? Where do I want to be in my life? How do I get there? And so when we get to the end of 1 Timothy and find this in this letter, we must understand Paul's intent for dropping it in here. We must understand Paul's intent for dropping it in here. 1 Timothy is this letter written from Paul to Timothy. Timothy was sort of his protege, and he was, he was receiving this word, for, word from, Timothy, or from Paul, Timothy was, and he was listening to uh, his instruction about some issues that were coming up in the church in Ephesus where Timothy, was, where Timothy was serving. So we can probably conclude that the conduct of the rich in the church in, the, in Ephesus uh, was a concern for Paul and, and therefore ultimately Timothy. That's not terribly different from our context. I, I feel like this is something that if Paul were writing about us in our context, he would, I think he would say something very similar. Natural divisions occur in, in churches based on economic appearing of one person over against another. And so that makes sense that these verses are so radically relevant in our own discussion of money. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but but on God. Now look at me with the, the, the group that Paul is concerned about, right? First, first few words there. As for the rich in this present age. That's the, that's the group Paul wants to talk about here. He wants to point out what's going on with this one group. Now, now the church in Ephesus, as most New Testament churches did, had a, had a false teacher problem. There were a lot of false teachers floating around in, in the New Testament. And they were making a mockery of the gospel. They were taking bits and pieces of it and, and using it to serve their own purposes. And so this is happening in most New Testament churches. And so Paul even, Paul even admonishes Timothy in, in this, if you jump back up the page to verse 3. Look at verse 3, and I'm going to read through verse 10 just for uh, the sake of some context here. Verse 3 in, in 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and, his teaching, and, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's a popular one. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So, so here's the thing. Paul is warning the people about being at odds with one another, right? He's warning Timothy to warn the church in Ephesus about being at odds with one another. And that's often happening, I think, because what's at the heart of this, these eight verses, is discontent. And the way that people are usually discontent is, as we read, continue reading in this chapter, with their personal finances. Again, money is a window to the heart. How we treat money and think about it is how we know what we love. Paul Paul got this and the false teachers missed it. And so Paul like applies this simple rubric. The way that we know false, uh, that we can identify false teachers is this. If the application or outworking of what is being taught sets believers at odds with each other. If the application or outworking of what a teacher teaches puts a follower of Jesus at odds with other believers, then that teacher is teaching a different doctrine that Paul is talking about in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how do we identify that person? It's if what they teach puts us at odds with other believers. If you're wondering if a voice in the Christian subculture is reliable, apply this filter. Does this teaching put me at odds with other believers? Does self-fulfillment sound like harmony between believers? In fact, self-fulfillment usually comes at the expense of others. If that's a doctrine that that you've subscribed to, consider that it might have come from a from a false teacher. The gospel of self-fulfillment is a doctrine of demons. If Satan can get you to think about yourself and yourself only, many of us are losing this battle, then brother will in fact be set against brother. The example here in this text is sufficient. If a teacher claims to be a Christian but tells you that God wants you to be rich, you should reject that teacher. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Because Jesus says it clearly in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If someone comes and tells you that God wants you to be rich and that's his primary aim for your life, you can be certain that it is not of God because it will set you against your brother And because it goes directly against what Jesus says here. If you serve money, you will certainly not love your neighbor. You may like your neighbor, but you'd like him a lot more if you made more money than he does. 
Any message that says that God wants his children to be rich should be rejected wholesale because a desire for or a love for money sets brother against brother. Now Paul's concern is in, in, in verse 17, the rich in this present age. This is the people who already have wealth. So what does that mean for us? How do we get our heads around that? How do we get our heads around as for the rich of this present age? Does this mean for us? Does it mean millionaires or people who make six figures or property owners? What does this mean? And I think that the scope of this phrase, as for the rich in this present age, is actually determined by Paul's charge or what Paul tells Timothy to charge to the church in Ephesus. He says, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I think the scope is actually, is actually determined by to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He says to Timothy, charge them not to be arrogant or conceited or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The first is a general concern that comes with wealth, just arrogance in general. The second though, the second is to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The first, general, second, specific. The rich of this present age are those who are tempted, the rich in this present age are those who are tempted to think that money will offer them security or as a realistic place to put your hope. Not just ones who have inflated bank accounts, but anyone who is tempted to put his or her hope in the uncertainty of, of riches. So with that in mind, I think you'd have to make a pretty good argument to me to tell me, to convince me that we all in this room don't fall into this camp. No matter what your bank account says, are we tempted because of what society tells us to put our hope in the uncertainty of riches? I think because of what society says, the answer for that us in this room is absolutely yes. And not because we have Scrooge McDuck swimming pools with, full of money or because we have stocks and bonds, but because we live in a society where the wealthy are thought to have security and that our society drives a message that more money means more security. And think about it, we, I, we all have a problem in our life that we think, I think if we really go into our hearts right now, we all have a problem that we think if we just had a little bit more money, that, that it would take care of the issue. If I just made 50 cents more an hour, or if I made an additional five or $10,000 a year, Paul is warning against this thinking. He's telling Timothy to charge the believers in Ephesus to not think this way. So we are all not to hope in anything other than God. And again, look at how Paul phrases this, this charge. To set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, we've all been conditioned to believe that money provides security. Emergency funds and retirement accounts and life insurance. And while those things are not bad in and of themselves and oftentimes can be considered and should be regularly considered as good stewardship, they also tempt us to set our hopes on them. But Paul uses a word here that we have to note. The word is uncertainty. Uncertainty. The Bible calls rich 
Riches, money, and wealth, uncertainty. Can, can you find certainty in the uncertain? I don't think so. Can you find security in the uncertain? Th- those words, security and uncertainty, are in direct opposition to each other. Certain or uh, secure uncertainty, security, uncertainty. Those words, uh, together, if you put them together, that's an oxymoron. The very truth that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to Timothy and to use the word uncertainty should be, without question, enough for us to rethink every time we think that money can provide us with the security that we desperately need. And so this becomes... If we take this a step higher, this becomes a a question of faith. It becomes a question of of faith. Now, when we talk about faith, we talk about faith pretty regularly, but there is a, a, sometimes this, this thought in Christian subculture that faith is a a leap or, or is blind. Oftentimes you'll hear someone say, just, just have faith or just believe and if that's your idea of faith, listen closely, because the Bible addresses that. The most explicit definition of faith that we have in Scripture, and there's a crossover word between this definition and between our text this morning. The definition comes in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The author of Hebrews writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance of things, of things hoped for. Faith, therefore, requires an, an object. You, you must have faith in something. And although not seen, we have the sufficient word of God to point us and to assure us of all the promises God makes to us. And there isn't a whole lot of assurance in a blind leap. There is a whole lot of assurance in the sufficient, infallible, inerrant word of God that we have before us this morning. So, but there is a crossover word here. Now, faith is the the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word that crosses over into our text this morning is hope, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Hope is an expectation. And in this case, Paul is using hopes in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.17 to describe the expectation of deliverance from difficulty. God has promised to deliver his people from sin and death and he accomplished it with the cross of Christ, sealed it with the promised Holy Spirit and guarantees a full restoration when Christ returns to fully realize his kingdom and new creation. And so this is an issue of faith, belief or trust. The way that we think about our personal finances, friends, is an issue of faith, of belief, of trust. In the New Testament, those words are all the same. In the original language, it's the same word, faith, belief, trust. You see those things. It's the same word. This is an issue of faith because by setting our hopes on riches or on money, on wealth, what we're saying is that I believe money has the ability to correct my problems, to deal with my biggest issues, to resolve my brokenness, to restore my relationships. But the word uncertainty looms in this text for us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And what Hebrews 11.1 1 says, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. A strong case, and maybe your Bible reads this way, a strong case can be made for reality. 
The Holman Christian Standard Bible reads this. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof, the proof of what is not seen. And I love this translation because it highlights, because it highlights that faith is the byproduct, the actual outworking of properly placed hope. Friends, when your hope is properly placed in the one true and living God and in him only, the byproduct of that hope is, is in fact faith. Faith is the proof of the spiritual as described in God's word. Christians always exhibit faith. Not by taking leaps, not by letting go and letting God, not by walking into situations blindly, but by firmly fixing their hopes on God and the generosity displayed in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. And therefore, setting hopes on the uncertainty of riches, like Paul says, is a matter of faith. Hope in God yields that rich belief, faith, and trust. Hope in God and all that he is. And he alone can restore his people at the resurrection. That he has made a way for us to have right relationship with him once again. Through the sacrifice of Jesus. Hope in riches is incapable of doing any of that because of what Paul says at the page on, in, in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. This is a matter of longevity. It's a matter of, of longevity. We know this in our minds. God is eternal. Wealth is temporary. Our souls are eternal. Material is temporary but our sinful flesh still runs hard after wealth and after money and we pursue it with a passion greater than we have ever displayed for the immortal, invisible, God-only wise. We think that we're living our best life now and when our, own, our best life can only come later. We think that we're leaving a legacy for our children when we're really just exposing the flank of our family to the arrows of the evil one. We think we're investing wisely when we have stocks and bonds, when in reality we're investing like a fool. And again, Paul says to charge the rich in this present age, those who, who accumulate wealth or live in a time that are tempted to rely on money that is bound to this present age, your 401k or your savings account, your stocks and bonds are meaningless in the age to come. Therefore, set your hopes on God he never changes. Friends, money is subject to inflation, to markets, foreign and domestic. Your money is subject to the strength or weakness of an economy. Money is always changing. We serve a God who never changes. In an eternity past and an eternity future, he never changes. And when the age to come is upon us and we, when, when we die or when Jesus returns, your money will be worth literally nothing. But God never changes. His infinite worth will extend for all of eternity. He's the one, and then look at the end of the, this verse. So don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So hope is to be fixed firmly on God and then he provides us with everything to enjoy. This is an interesting way for Paul to conclude because all of a sudden he changes it from the, what's, what, is, what has longevity, what is eternal? And then he says, no, but there is something here in the, in the temporary. 
And here's the conclusion that we should draw. Here's the conclusion that we should draw. That which we have in the temporary has been given to us by a generous God who provides us with more than we deserve in order that we might enjoy him. That which we have in the temporary has been given to us by a generous God who provides us with more than we deserve in order that we might enjoy him. Whatever God has blessed you with in this, in this present age, it has one purpose. And this is what Paul is communicating to Timothy. It has one purpose. Those who are, who are rich in this present age, the things that they have, have one purpose. It's for them to enjoy God. And not only the rich of this present age, but those who maybe find themselves in a less privileged economic position. All that they have is more than they deserve, and it's all to enjoy God. All that they have is more than they deserve, and it's all given to them to enjoy, enjoy God. When we enjoy the things that we have here on earth, do they cause us to enjoy God? We are to enjoy that which we have been given in this present age, but we can only do that if we've set our hopes on God and not the uncertainty of riches. You see, this is a matter of priorities. Where are we setting our hopes? If our hopes are firmly fixed on the one true and living God primarily, then everything that we have, this text is not a guilt trip. This text is to tell us that stop comparing Stop looking at other people around you and saying, if I only had what they have. If I only had the kind of security that someone who has a million dollars in their bank account has. That's not at all what we should be doing. We will not allow or we will not enjoy that which we have if we're leveling unrealistic expectations on money. And when we set our hopes in the uncertainty of riches, that's exactly what we're doing. We're leveling unrealistic expectations on money. Money is a gift, it's not the giver. Oftentimes we invert that. Wise use of money involves not expecting your money to deliver you from difficulties. Wise use of money involves not expecting your money to make you richer. You have all you need in Christ. You will not enjoy that which you have if you are discontent with it. The only way to be truly content with that which you have is to set your hopes on God. What if we viewed all that we had in a material sense as enough? What if our mindset was not about always accumulating more, but simply enjoying that which we have and recognizing it as a gift? A gift from a generous God who gives us far more than we deserve so that we might enjoy him. In a moment, we're going to go to the, to the Lord's table. And next week, we'll tackle verses 18 and 19 because, again, these are the, the practical outworkings of verse 17. Paul says, get your mind here, and then this will flow out of it. But I'm going to give you a few questions to conclude verse 17 this morning. Here's the first one. Am I comparing my economic status to others? Paul tells Timothy to command humility, right? That's the first thing he tells them, he, charge, he says to charge them. Charge them not to be haughty or arrogant or conceited. 
And one thing that plagues our society is that we're usually looking up the ladder of economic success and not down it. So think about this. If you're doing well financially, do you believe that your financial position is of your own during? I'm not saying like, are you doing well financially like you're burning hundreds in your fireplace? I'm saying like, do you have all that you need right now for today? And if you think that's because of your hustle or because of your work ethic, that things are going well, then you're arrogant, haughty, or conceited. And that's what Paul tells Timothy to charge the Ephesians, those who are wealthy in this present age in Ephesus, not to do. Or maybe you're lower on the ladder and you're looking up and this comparison will lead to entitlement and discontent. That person has more than, but, but I'm a better person. I work harder. That person has more than I do. Again, it will lead to entitlement and discontent. You certainly, you certainly will not enjoy the things that God has given you if that's your mentality. If you tend towards comparison, I think some of us do more than others. If you tend towards comparison, consider that it is God who has given you all that you have to enjoy despite the fact that you deserve none of it. Second question I'll leave you with. And what do I place my hope? Simple question. Because of the, the fulcrum of this text. If things are difficult right now, are you tempted to think more money will fix the problem? If you find yourself in a position of difficulty, are you tempted to think that more money will solve the problem? Do you believe, do you trust that God will fulfill all of his promises to you? That he will not leave you or forsake you? That he will uphold you with his righteous right hand? That you will be raised with Christ? If, if you're struggling to believe those simple promises that God gives us in his word this morning, if you're struggling to believe those, or if you walk out of this room and those things are far from your mind throughout the course of the week, this text tells us very clearly, consider where you're setting your hopes. Are your hopes on the uncertainty of wealth or on the uncertainty of something in this temporary present age? Or are they on God? And you ask, well, how do I, how do I hope in God? And friends, we must fight. What, what do we do when difficulty comes our way and where our heart tells us that we can fix it or something in this tem temporary present age can fix it? If you ask the question, if you ask the question, when difficulty comes my way, what does my heart tell me can fix it? If you answer God, then friends, your faith will flourish and grow. If you answer something else, then you, have, then you have what you tend to hope in. Final question this morning that I'll leave you with. It's one that we talked about right out the gate. Am I, am I living in harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I living in harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, now harmony actually like means having a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. If, if you say, I'm a recluse and I live in a hole in the ground, but nobody has any beef with me, that you're not really getting the point here. The point is, if you are together living with people in community who have 
confessed together that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and the direction of your life is, is towards him. Are you living in harmony with, with those people? It, if you're at odds with someone in this room or someone outside of this room who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, if you're at odds with someone who falls into that camp, is it because you've believed a false message? Is it because you believe that money can fulfill your desires? That setting your hopes on the uncertainty of riches will actually yield something beneficial for you? Or maybe you've set your hopes in a gospel of self-fulfillment. Harmony and unity with other believers is tied to right belief and to commonality and direction. So ask yourself those questions this week. Am I comparing my economic status with others? And what do I place my hope in? Am I living in harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ? These will be very telling, especially as we consider right use of money in our day-to-day.